Welcome to the Indoor AirPod, a show dedicated to our shared surroundings with industry heavyweights that are dedicated to designing, developing, manufacturing, and disrupting the status quo in order to make all our spaces cleaner and safer for everyone. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Indoor AirPod. I'm Gary Moody, the host. My special guest today is Allison Bales. He's a building science expert. His company is Energy Vanguard. He's also a best-selling author. Also sitting in today is J.B. Anderson. He's the Indoor AirPod producer. Allison, it's great to have you on. I feel like I've known you for at least a couple of years, and you're one of the people that I definitely follow all the time on LinkedIn. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to, to be here, Gary. You know, before we talk about, you know, what, what you do currently in your energy vanguard and, you know, as we move forward about your, your best-selling book, why don't you share your career path? Uh, you know, give us a, a look back in time. About, you know, when did you start? How did you start? And how did you end up where you're at? Today. Oh, my career path. Okay. Well, in fifth grade, uh, no, we're not going to go that far back. <laughs> um, so yeah, my background is physics. I have a bachelor's degree in physics, and uh, I'm also a couple of master's degrees in physics and a PhD in physics. So that's my background. And I was in academia. I taught at the college. Well, I taught high school physics for, for a few years, and then I went to graduate school, got the PhD, and I taught at the college level for six years. And um, my tenure track job that brought me to Georgia, where I live now, did not work out. Uh, and it, I mean, I knew early on that it was not going to work out. So instead of doing things that would have helped me get tenure, I bought some land and I built a house. And that experience launched me into this new career. It was an incredible experience. I loved, I loved, you know, working with my hands and spent two whole summers working full time on the house. And uh, learned a lot about building science at that point. Hadn't really scratched the surface of uh, indoor air quality at that point yet. Um, but you know, once you uh, once you get into building science, it doesn't take long to to get uh, indoor air quality um, on your resume. <laughs> and you know, it's all connected. All you know, air tightness. Um, you know, well, the the book. It's called in my book is called a house needs to breathe or does it and the reason it's called that is because so many builders have told that to me oh we shouldn't make houses too airtight the house needs to breathe and that's absolutely wrong we do want houses to be airtight but indoor air quality is a lot more uh, it's air tightness is critical for indoor air quality but it's not the only thing so um uh, so I kind of guess I got That's off. That's where you're at right now. So, part. <laughs> yeah. Regarding your work now, uh, tell yeah. us about Energy Vanguard. What do you specialize in? Uh, is your work mostly commercial? Is it residential? Is it a mix of both? Uh, yeah, Energy Vanguard is my company. I started it in 2008, and for a couple of years it was just me. And then I uh, started hiring people in 2010. And right now we've got a great, great, great team. There's five of us. And most of what we do is HVAC design. I'm uh, I'm not directly involved in that so much anymore, uh, but we uh, we've got four people that, that that's pretty much all they do, and it's residential. We do I don't know 99.5% residential 
every once in a while we dip our toes a little bit in the commercial water, but mostly residential. And um, we, uh, you know, do the full process the with the air conditioner, air conditioning contractors of America protocols, manual J, manual S, manual D, manual T, and do a lot of heat pumps, a lot of inverter driven heat pumps. Um, we've got them in our office. I've got them in my house. Most, most of, most of the designs we do are, are with Mitsubishi. They are a sponsor, full disclosure there, but we, we do other stuff as well. We do carrier systems, Daikin, we do all kinds of stuff. A little bit of everything. Um, regarding indoor air quality assessments, is that something you offer? If somebody called you today and they had a, a building or, or obviously a home and they said, you know, they think they have a serious IQ issue. Is that something that you offer? No, we, we don't do that. We don't really get out and do much in the way of any kind of assessments anymore. We used to do more of that, but now it's um, it's mostly, you know, consulting, uh, the educational stuff you know, with the blog and the book and my speaking events and then the um, HVAC design stuff. Do you, regarding how do you generate business future leads? Do, do you get it from uh, consulting engineers or do you get it from HVAC contractors? Uh, how does word get out about you and how does, how do people find you? Okay. Uh, so two separate questions there. One is, you know, who, who, who hires us, and the other is how do they find us? You bet. Um, so they find us by uh, doing a search online. We are very visible. Google likes energyvanguard.com, and lots of the articles that I've written in the past almost 14 years now uh, rank highly on Google. So somebody's doing a search for indoor air quality or HVAC design or spray foam insulation or, you know, things like that. Um, they're likely to run across one of my articles. Okay. A lot of different ways. Uh, yeah. Obviously, yeah. obviously the marketing influence online is where it's at in the long term for so many people. And, and you do a great job. Where does IAQ monitoring fit into your, your future designs? Um, I, I sense that the public in the long term is going to want to have a more and more of an idea about what they're breathing indoors and of course as, as you know it's not a simple subject it's not a simple subject and um right now i mean you know if, if people ask us about it we we you know we'll we'll send them links to my articles usually <laughs> uh, but we it's not part of what we offer in the design or anything it's yeah a lot of and let me go back to the previous question. So who, who hires us? So usually it's one of three kinds of people hire us. You know, sometimes it's um, an architect. Sometimes it's the home builder. And sometimes it's somebody having a house built or maybe maybe building it themselves, owner builders. Uh, occasionally HAC contractors, but mostly it's architects, builders, and owners who are hiring us. And... Um, I forget uh, what this question was about. But. Well, it's okay. About <laughs> indoor, indoor air quality monitoring. Uh, as you know, uh, the CO2 metric, there's a lot yeah. of differences of opinion. In your opinion, is it a reasonably good metric that will give anybody a quick idea whether or not their ventilation is good, fair, or poor? So in my opinion, um, uh, well, my opinion is based on the ASHRAE position paper on indoor uh, 
monitoring of CO2. And that, basically what you just said, it, it can give you a, an idea of how good the ventilation is, how much air exchange there is between indoors and outdoors. It's, it's not a measure of how good your indoor air quality is because indoor air quality depends on a lot of different things. It depends on you know where the pollutants are coming from and I mean, how much exchange rate you have, how, how much filtration you have. And CO2 tells you one thing. And, and that one thing, that you know, the, the level of carbon dioxide indoors is related to how much air exchange you have. It doesn't say anything about filtration. So you can have a high CO2 rate and very low particulate levels if you have really good filtration. You bet. I, if I'm not mistaken, you had indicate you've indicated in the past that your five ways to most effectively improve IQ starts with source control, then building tightness, then moisture control, and then filtration and ventilation. Is that is that correct? Yeah. Yep. Yes. I, I would definitely put source control at the top of that list because the you know the the number one thing we can do is is not not um, bring bad things into the house that are going to cause a problem. Uh, or do things in the house that are going to create a problem. You know, if you're if you're painting with oil-based paint, for example, nobody does that anymore. But if you were doing that, uh, either do it outside the house or have very good ventilation while you're doing it. So um, yeah. think about the source control first. Uh, you know, you know, from choosing what kind of furniture you bring in to, um, you know, how you're cooking and. Things like that. Yeah, a lot of things. Hi, gentlemen, the J JB here. Um, uh, Allison, I've, I've got a follow-up question along the lines of what you and Gary have just been talking about. Um, and it feeds off of your uh, experience in building the house and kind of cutting your teeth and in, in getting the bug through that process to lean into this industry. You know, when you look at the custom home market, new home market in general, you know, I, I myself, I was a general contractor. I built a number of homes, high energy homes and other, um, you know, when you look at that, there's silos of, you, you have frame and envelope, you've got your three main mechanicals and you have your interior finishes and all of them, you know, yes, they operate under a general contractor or a builder, but they're all really kind of islands upon themselves. And Gary, you know, in, through this podcast, monitoring is, is such a central subject. Um, do you think because HVAC contractors in particular are really just a piece of those four, five, six big elements of construction, if they were to be more proactive and more forceful in integrating monitoring when there are all these other things that really come into play to affect that, is, do you think that, th that there's a potential of, I might put in the best unit for your situation, but I can't help if that number is red, you know, via the monitor because your windows aren't tight or whatever it is. Um, is, is there a little bit of fear of the numbers that might be slowing down the HVAC market from leaning into integrating more monitoring in the design process? Oh, that's a big question. So, uh, number one, I, I would say monitoring is going to do no good if nobody looks at it. Uh, I mean, so if you're putting monitors, you know, some kind of indoor air quality monitors or energy monitoring or any, any whatever kind of monitoring you're doing, if you put it that put that in a house where the people just don't care about it, 
you're, you're just wasting your money on on that monitoring and um when it, you know if if people start learning about this stuff and and finding out you know that carbon dioxide levels are related to air exchange rates and and uh, you know VOCs and PM two point five you know high levels of that or radon another baddie uh, or carbon monoxide that's that's one that I've written through about a lot and that uh, is. <laughs> Is easily one of the the, the most pervasive uh, pollutants. I think that people aren't aware of, and we hear the stories about the people dying of carbon monoxide poisoning because they brought a, a unvented space heater in the house when the power was out or something, a kerosene heater. But what we don't hear as much about, or we, well, we hardly hear anything about it, is the the low levels of carbon monoxide poisoning that that people suffer from a lot because the standard Carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide monitors. Now, I just almost said dioxide there. Let me point out, we're talking about monoxide, carbon monoxide. Now, right. that's the stuff that that can kill you pretty quickly if you're breathing enough of it because it replaces oxygen. You, you breathe in oxygen, and that attaches to the blood cells, and um, you get hemoglobin. And with carbon monoxide, it takes the place of oxygen, and so it basically starves your brain. Of, of oxygen and you go to sleep and you don't wake up um, or you get really bad headaches or you have flu-like symptoms. So carbon monoxide at low levels happens all the time because people have, have um, faulty exhaust systems on their combustion appliances. People have unvented combustion in their houses that, that can create carbon monoxide. So if we want to talk about monitoring that, that would be the number one thing. And, and we need to talk about low level versus standard monitoring of carbon monoxide because the standard monitors, the UL listed carbon monoxide uh, detectors that you buy at the big box stores are set to um, go off only at very high levels. Like you have to have 70 parts per million of carbon monoxide for two hours or more before it will alarm. Well, that means you could breathe 60 parts per million almost indefinitely. I think there's a limit on, on, on 60 parts per million, but it, um, it would have to be days before it would go off. Uh, so yeah, the, um, the with carbon monoxide, get a good low level carbon monoxide monitor. And, and, and you know, that one you don't have to look at because it'll go off. You know, if you've got levels high enough at uh, 10 parts per million or higher, the low-level ones will start alarming and and give you some uh, some feedback that you uh, will need to make some changes in your house because you don't want to be breathing even low levels of that stuff. You bet. It seems like what at least what I sense, Allison, in the long range, I think the public's going to want to learn more and more and more about what they might be breathing indoors right now the public there's no public demand generally speaking yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you're well aware of this uh, 1974 the safe drinking water act was enacted but it took decades for the public to learn about water quality pollution I, it just seems like iq monitoring has a big long-term future and where it's going to go nobody knows regarding wildfire smoke is that part of uh, is that going to be an important part of your future H building design work and uh, what about spend against it? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, the last few years have been terrible with with wildfires, and you know it puts lots of particulate matter in the air. Uh, if you don't have an airtight house, that that stuff is coming into your house. If you're in the wildfire zone with the smoke all around, and if you have even if you have an airtight house and you have a ventilation system, um, you know that can overwhelm your ventilation system and and clog your filter very quickly. The so. Designing for wildfires is is getting to be more and more important. Yeah, it seems like more and more people are going to want to they're going to want to have you know be protected and know more about it. Regarding uh, the top five pollutants, you mentioned uh, let's review with them again with you again. What's the top five in your opinion? The, the most dangerous. Top five. Um, well, I would put carbon monoxide at the top, and. Um, PM 2.5 right up there also. So those, those would be my top two. And with, um, with volatile organic compounds, VOCs, uh, there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, formaldehyde, you know, urea formaldehyde. And, um, so, uh, yeah, there's, uh, the, 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 I, would, I would put those, those are my top two, PM 2.5 and carbon monoxide, and then some of the VOCs. Not all VOCs are bad. So my, my IAQ monitors spike the most on VOCs, and I'll go up to like 2,000 wow. with, uh, when I open a bottle of scotch. <laughs> I don't consider that an indoor air pollutant. I won't ask you how often you do that, but uh, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe someday, maybe someday you'll share that. Yeah. Which of the following three types of buildings in your opinion, have the worst indoor air quality in general, schools, hotels, or nursing homes? Oh, gosh. Well, since we mostly do residential stuff, I'm not qualified to answer that, but um, I have stayed in a lot of hotels. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, hotels definitely have a humidity problem. Uh, I, I wrote an article about that because I, I uh, this past summer I did a... Um, a book tour up to the Northeast, all the way to Halifax, Nova Scotia, and back to yep. Atlanta. And, you know, I had my little AirNet 4 CO2 monitor, which also monitors the temperature and relative humidity. And even, even hotels that, that didn't have a problem with carbon monoxide, even, you know, some of the fancy hotels had problems with humidity in the summertime. They, because they're, they're relying on exhaust-only ventilation, and they mostly don't have any supply ventilation to balance that out, and and uh, and not, you know not any real dehumidification. They're relying on the in-room heating and cooling systems, which don't dehumidify well enough because they're oversized. Because hotel rooms have almost no load, no cooling load, because mostly, you know, there there's for most hotel rooms there's just one wall connected to the outside. So that's where pretty much all the load comes from, the cooling load. And the, the system is oversized for that load, and so it doesn't dehumidify very well, and there's not any supplemental dehumidification. So hotels have a humidity problem. All, all that good stuff. The Biden administration, I think it was about two months ago, Allison, uh, made an announcement, and they are in agreement with something like half the governors in the U.S. that they want 20 million heat pumps installed by 2030. What are your thoughts about heat pumps? Are they one size fit all? Uh, are they one size fit all? No, they're not one size fit all. Fits all. 
Uh, I love heat pumps. We Most of our, our design business is heat pumps. Uh, we do lots of inverter-driven heat pumps, and, and they are great. Variable capacity, variable speed blowers, and, uh, you know, so they, they ramp up and down to adjust to the actual load in the house because most of the time, if, if you're using a fixed capacity system, you are, you, you have a system that's like having a car with the only control you have for speed is the ignition switch. Uh, you, can, you can turn it on and you're going full speed, you can turn it off and, and you're not going at all. So what that means is that the vast majority of the time, we're at part load conditions. We're not at the design load that we designed the system for. We're, we have a lower load, but we're still running at full speed. So it just runs less time. And in cooling season and in, in humid climates, that means you don't get as good a dehumidification. Um, and especially, uh, yeah, I mean, in the shoulder seasons, when you have, uh, when you don't even get near the design conditions most of the time, you're not going to be able to dehumidify. So, but uh, there's a big, big well, future for heat pumps. Yeah, I, I have a question for you, Allison, and it's in regards uh, sure. to the residential kind of design process, because um, obviously every municipality is a little bit different, but for the most part, there's code across the country in each region um, as it pertains to HVAC design and new construction, renovation, et cetera. You know, and when you really look at that code and what you guys design for, kind of the the bare minimums typically are hyper focused on uh, energy efficiency. Um, and now with kind of the, the the growth and the prevalence and awareness of uh, groups like ASHRAE and what they do by expanding and focusing on not only energy efficiency but health and the quality of the air, do you see? Um, potentially uh, local governments, state governments, et cetera, do you see the role of government becoming more important uh, in stepping in to add to code uh, in order to address those, those health issues on top of just energy efficiency in the HVAC design process? In some locations, yes, I think that can happen. Uh, in other locations, no, because there's a, always a huge battle. When, you know, when when states are updating their code, like we went through this about four or five years ago in Georgia, and you know, there's there's a, a big contingent of, of people who say, well, we can make houses better and better and better, uh, and then they'll be completely unaffordable and nobody can buy them anymore. And that's one way to look at it. Um, the other is we can keep uh, keep building the way we are, and then pass those costs of making the house better onto the homeowners down the road when they have to make all the improvements that should have been built into the house, or you know, you know, well, the ones they can still make. Some of them, you know, if you miss the opportunity at new, you know during construction, then it's pretty much gone. So, um, yeah, I mean the 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 code process can can bring some of these improvements, but it, you know that's always a battle between the, the different factions trying to get their their views incorporated. Well, I, I understand. Follow up real quick, guys. Uh, I understand that that really is probably more of a political question than not. I'm asking you your opinion 
from a design standpoint, do you wish or do you think there should be more mandate in code that addresses health parameters on top of efficiency? So um, addressing health parameters and building codes. Let me give you an example real quick, kind of like a parallel. Uh, Basements, you know, here, if you're building a house that has a basement and you want to put in a bedroom, there's got to be a closet and there's got to be an egress window, right? So Mm -hmm. you got to spend all the money, dig down, well, et cetera. And it's a window that nobody will realistically ever go out of, but they're thinking of the safety and health of the humans that live in the basement. Whereas every single day, these units are pumping the air that we breathe, you know, that is arguably more uh, uh, involved in our health on a day in, day out basis than that egress window. So that that's kind of where I'm going at now that in this post COVID world where air quality is so front and center, do you feel there should be or will be a push to uh, codify more health standards in the building process. Um, yeah, I, I think so, and I, I think that's it's it's more likely to happen in commercial and institutional buildings than in residential, or well, maybe in multifamily, yeah. um, more in multifamily family than in single family, because you know, in, in schools, for example, there's been a lot, big emphasis on indoor air quality in schools since COVID, and. You know, there's there's been some good things happening there and some some not so good things. <laughs> there's been a lot of companies making a lot of money uh, on questionable technology. So, one one of which uh, is bipolar ionization. What are your thoughts about bipolar ionization? I think I know what they are, but if you'd be kind enough to share what your yeah. thoughts are. Well, uh, so I, I'm gonna. Uh, wrap that up into a bigger category. So bipolar ionization is, is one uh, air cleaning technology. You know, um, there's you know, ionization and um, photocatalytic oxidation and ozone and so these different additive air cleaners where they are adding things to the air that are going to chemically react with stuff in the air. And the idea is that these um, chemical reactions are going to, to turn bad stuff into neutral stuff or good stuff. But other things can happen as well. Um, they can they can turn good stuff into bad stuff or neutral stuff into bad stuff. And they can also create other things. Like some of these air cleaners create ozone. Well, you should not be breathing ozone. There's there's problems with, with ozone. I mean, it creates respiratory uh, problems and so we, you don't want to be breathing ozone. You don't want to be in a room where ozone is being generated. And so, additive air cleaners in general, in my opinion, are not worth it. We we have you know if you rely on the, the five basics that we talked about earlier: source yes. control, moisture control, air tightness, filtration, and ventilation. You can have really good air quality, and you don't. And, that, and that's so, even without UV light. UV UV is is good technology. I mean, you you want the kind that does not produce ozone. Uh, depends on the kind of glass around the lamp and the um, it, it if engineered properly, it can work well to reduce indoor air pollutants. Um, it can also destroy materials inside HVAC systems when you use it in the ducts. Uh, you know, I just posted a uh, 
picture the other day on LinkedIn of a filter that was damaged by the UV lamp because not all materials are, are um, resistant to ultraviolet radiation and they, they degrade. So you have to you have to have those things engineered problem uh, properly, and they their UV lamps are are best in an induct situation. They're best to keep the coil and the the drain pan clean. To get them to clean the air that's passing through requires a, a higher energy level than they're usually designed for. They would have to be engineered really well for that, and they're. Especially in residential systems, they're usually not engineered that carefully. You bet. I'm a longtime resident of South Florida, and I've met with hundreds of contractors in their offices in the past. And and I'm sure you're aware of this, but you know the contractors sell UV light. They've been selling it and shining it on the coil for decades. Yep. We we both know the public needs educated because this is so complicated. Uh, you know, in your opinion, how best should the public could the public be? educated regarding the best ways to most effectively protect their health. Is there, is there some type of way, public servicing messages, for example? Oh, gosh, that's a big question. So, I mean, number one, the yeah, most people don't change the filter nearly often. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to get to that, Alice. So let, let's, let's start with the very basic here. Um, you know, when, when the people who care enough to change their filters re, you know, enough, um, and and to even you know think about the possibility of putting in better filtration than that Merv two one inch fiberglass filter they have, with lots of bypass around it. Um, those are the, those are the people I think who are going to care enough to to do more. Um, but you know, step one, care about the filter. <laughs> Step, step, step two, by, yeah, step two, buy your book. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, sure, yes. Yeah, re, re, regarding your book, we got to talk about it. If we yeah. could, uh, I, I highly recommend to anybody tuning in that they pick up a copy. Allison, do you by chance have a, a sequel to your current book? Not up? yet, not yet. Um, I, I'm, I'm. I've been tossing some ideas around in my head, and uh, so, but there there will be another one, yes. Okay, in twenty twenty four, possibly, or yep. not yeah. sure. Uh, unless unless I have an amazing spurt of creativity <laughs> and productivity. <laughs> so, hey, I, let me ask a quick question about the book. The book is titled "A House Needs to Breathe." Dot dot dot. Or does it? Um, just real quickly, um, inspiration and theme if you were to describe that in a nutshell of the book? Well, the inspiration I, I mentioned earlier, I mean, the, the inspiration for the title, you know, I, yeah. I heard too many builders say, oh, we shouldn't make houses too airtight. They, a house needs to breathe. So, okay, there, no, a house does, does not need to breathe. That answer is on page 23 in the book. <laughs> and, um, you know, airtightness is one of the, the, the big five things we want to do for good indoor air quality. Um, so, and, and, and inspiration for the book as a whole is, you know, I, I've been doing this for 20 years now and teaching it for 15. And 
I, I've, I've been writing the blog for almost 14 years now, and I wanted to, to kind of have a compilation of some of the, the main ideas of it. So that's that's where this came from. And finally, you know, when the pandemic hit, I said, okay, this is a good time to, to get started on it. <laughs> you had time. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and, oh, and, and you asked also about theme. So the, I mean, it's an introduction to building science. So it's, I, I start from the, the beginning, which is the end. The first, there's, there's three sections in the book. The first section is start at the end. You know, what is it that, that people need out of the, the places where they live? You know, they, they, they want a place that makes them happy. They want a place that's comfortable. They want a place that doesn't cost them a fortune uh, to, on operational expenses, energy costs and, and things like that. Um, and, uh, and then I go into the building enclosure and then the mechanical system. So those are the, the three main sections. Cool. So. How, how does the average person know to how to best tighten their house up, Allison? Uh, does it have to be, ideally it's done in, in a planning stage, you know, the, you know, before it's built, but are there some uh, quick points you can share with people? Yeah, or so, building up or home, I should say. Yeah, I mean, if somebody uh, has the the skills and wants to to crawl around under their house and get up in the attic, there there are certainly things they can do. Um, you can you can get cans of spray foam, or better, get a, a an actual spray foam gun that instead of just the straw, which uh, you know after a while your finger's going to be really killing you. <laughs> <laughs> But you can get the the professional guns, which aren't that expensive. Uh, and if you're really serious about it, get get a, a gun, and there are places you can get them online. And uh, and get some some bigger materials because the first thing you want to do is find the big holes. When you go in the attic or in the crawl space, there are going to be big holes, and you want to seal those up first. So you use materials like foam board, or maybe um, plywood, or some some rigid material that you can cover the big hole with and then you seal around it with spray foam or caulk some kind of a sealant and um, and then once you get all the big holes done and you have to of course be careful about things like um, furnace flues and water heater flues because those things get hot you have to be careful what materials you put next to them so um you need to do your homework if, if you really want to do this and, uh, and then, you know, find the big holes, seal them first and go for the, the next next level of, of holes. And eventually you'll end up trying to find all the small holes and make the house tighter. And, and if the person is inquisitive, uh, they'll seek out even further ways to, to more effectively tighten their home. You're a guest speaker, are you not? Do you speak, are you on the ASHRAE circuit or what type of groups do you? Speaking. Well, I, I speak to all kinds of groups. I have spoken to home inspectors. Uh, last week, I was in Maine doing the keynote for uh, a group of that. architects, and uh, uh, yeah, a lot of different, uh, a lot of different groups hire me to come and speak. Sometimes for just an hour, sometimes for a day or, or two days. Uh, there's a um, earlier this year, I went to. Ontario and did a, a day-long session for um, a ground-coupled heat pump manufacturer, or not manufacturer, but a distributor in Guelph, Ontario. And it looks like I'll be going back there again this May. So, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I got a quick hard-hitting question for you, Allison. Okay. Uh, your LinkedIn profile. Um, 
it's got your book, it has your company, but most importantly, can you define what a chief troublemaker is? <laughs> uh, somebody who asks questions that, that pisses people off. Um, <laughs> oh, so you're my wife. <laughs> I haven't seen you in a minute. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah. yeah. There, there's a, a lot to discuss, as you know, about IAQ. And there's, you know, there's just, it can just go in so many different directions. If somebody asks you, Allison, what your definition of clean air indoors is, what would you say? My definition of clean air? Um, well, oh gosh. Uh, so, well, well, let me go back to the question you asked earlier. You asked what my top five uh, indoor air pollutants were. And I think I only gave you three. I, you know, I, I mentioned uh, carbon monoxide. PM 2.5. PM 2.5, and I mentioned formaldehyde. You know, as one of one of a bunch of different kinds of VOCs that can be a problem. But there, you know, radon is another one. I was going to ask you about that. Uh, Asbestos is another one. Older homes uh, often have asbestos in in the mastics used on floor tiles and and joint compound drywall. Uh, The the tape on duct systems sometimes has asbestos in it. Uh, some insulation materials, vermiculite, um, can have asbestos in it. So asbestos is, um, I would say, not one of the most important indoor air pollutants because it's mostly, as long as it's not friable, you know, breaking into small particles and getting in the air, it's it's not a problem. Uh, to uh, to have that be a, I mean, most of the people who who get affected by asbestos, from my understanding, and I'm not an expert in this, but most of the people, from what I've read, who get mesothelioma or asbestosis are people who work with it day in and day out. You know, they're they're grinding yeah. materials and it's get, you know, they're they're breathing it all day long. So it, it takes a lot of exposure. And like you know, radon also takes a lot of exposure. Yeah, re- regarding radon, it, it it would seem like. I, my guess would be that the public in general knows of radon, but they really don't know much about it. Is mm-hmm. radon going to be part of your future uh, design work uh, that you'll take more and more into consideration? Uh, what's um, going on? What's going on in Georgia, for example, with radon? Well, uh, I have high radon levels in my house. Um, we average ten to fifteen picocuries per liter. And you know, it's a 1961 house. We are in zone one. The EPA zone one for radon levels, which means you know the U.S. is divided into three zones. Zone one is the highest. Zone three is the lowest. But you can have high radon levels in a building even in, in zone three. So you you know you don't know without testing. You got to test. And we have high radon levels in my house. We are about to remodel the basement, which is where the radon is coming from. Radon is a radioactive gas comes out of the ground and can cause lung cancer with, with you know, enough exposure. And the, the, uh, the other thing is the people most likely to get lung cancer from uh, radon exposure are people who smoke. So if you are a non-smoker, you're about, your chances of getting ra- lung cancer from radon are about 10 times lower than if you're a smoker. So if you're a smoker in a, high, in a house with high radon, um, you better do something. <laughs> you, you better. I would say just about both of those things. Yeah. Uh, well, that getting back to the basement. Uh, mm-hmm. This is another reason why a basement needs not to breathe. Is that correct? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the radon is coming up, you know, out of the ground, and it finds cracks in the slab. And in, in my case, uh, there was um, sometime after the house was built, probably in the 70s, somebody put an interior perimeter drain in, and the concrete on top of that interior perimeter drain was cracking all around the perimeter of the slab. So that gives um, easy access to the indoor air for the soil gases. And you know, radon is a soil gas, methane and water vapor and other things are soil gases too. They can come in through those cracks. So once we um, get the, the basement uh, redone, you know, that's, we're getting the whole interior perimeter drain replaced and get a solid concrete slab and get it, it'll all be sealed up. And, and we'll uh, also be able to put a negative pressure in there to depressurize under the slab so that uh, it can pull those soil gases uh, out before they get uh, through and into the indoor air of the house. Uh, October 29th, I think it was, Allison, it's it towards the end of October, uh, CBS 16 Minutes did a segment on the air that we breathe indoors. Uh, did you see it? Joe Allen was on. Um, I, yeah, I did not. I saw a little bit of it, but I did not see the whole thing. Yeah, Joe Allen has been incredible. He's, he's a Harvard professor, done lots of, lots of great stuff with indoor air quality over the last few years. And... Um, yeah, I, I've got that bookmarked. I have not seen it yet, though. Yeah, he, he, the more that we all talk about indoor air quality, it just creates, it will contribute to creating more and more IAQ awareness. Yeah. What, what, if, if you were in charge, what, if, you know, where, where's the IAQ industry, do you think, going to be five years from now? Is it going to be standard operating practice uh, for all buildings to have not just a smoke detector or a CO monitor? Uh, what do you think is going to happen five years from now? And I... Well, you know, Niels Bohr said um, uh, predicting things is difficult, especially in the you know things in the future. <laughs> so uh, my my crystal ball may or may not work well, but uh, you know what I would like to see is that there's um, especially in, in commercial and institutional buildings where a lot of people spend time that. You know, th there's good ventilation, good filtration. There's good monitoring, and uh, you know, I've just had a, a session this morning with some guys at, at AirThings, and they've got a they've got two levels of of monitors. They, you know, they've got their AirThings for business monitors, which is what I was looking at this morning, and and their residential monitors. The AirThings for business lets you look at you know, a bunch of different buildings and, you know, each building can have a whole bunch of monitors in it. And so you can see, you know, what's going on, you know, you, know, you see a VOC event in one building and on one sensor, and then you can look at the others and see, you know, what kind of correlation do you have and where might it be coming from? So there's, um, there is a lot of really good stuff happening in the monitoring world now. And, you know, I think we're going to see more and more of that. The, the, the sensors are, are getting less expensive and more accurate all the time. And, you know, as, as they get adopted and more volume sales happen, then, uh, yeah, we're going to see more and more of that. Keep rolling on into the future. And as I think I mentioned earlier, my, my guess is I, the more and more of the public is going to want to have an idea about what they're breathing indoors. Yeah. They, they know of radon. They don't know when I say they in general. Yeah. You know, what is everybody knows the M word mold. Yeah. And oh, yeah. That was yeah. That was another one I thought about. Uh, you know, that would be one of my top five. So, okay. um, yeah. 
Yeah, I'll go from there. Well, listen, Allison, we're running short on time. Where can people find you on social media? Uh, social media, one place, LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. And uh, I, I, I post there pretty regularly. Uh, I've been a little bit slow lately because with coming and everything, but I post a lot there. I also um, I have a newsletter. It's called News okay. from the Front. I uh, usually publish that once a week and have usually have one new blog article a week and um, and so far one uh, one book and and it's a terrific book but Allison love to have you back in 2024 to pick up where we're going to leave off today and uh, I appreciate sure. your time very much no oh, well thank you for having me thank you for listening to the indoor air pod produced by gaslight STL your podcast partner Be sure to give our show a follow to keep up with upcoming guests and topics. And please reach out with any questions or guest suggestions.